0: 23 pages long, and yet it has been called the most influential text in the 19th century. The manifesto shaped communism, a movement that has dominated much of the world for over 150 years, as you know. Vast nations, millions and millions of people's lives have been shaped by this movement. But you know what impulse drove the architects of communism? It was the desire for a just and equal society. They saw the injustice and the inequality of a world where the rich get richer and the poor get nothing, and they dreamed of a better tomorrow. The name tells you a great deal about their vision, communism. It comes from the French word, which I don't know how to pronounce, but it's something like communism, (laughs) which means common. The desire to share goods in common with one another for all of us to prosper for all of us to flourish? Well, what happened? You know history is full of tragic ironies. The vision of a free and just society led to some of the least free and least just societies in the world. In the former GDR, the the German Democratic Republic, the government decided to keep tabs on the citizens to make sure they were keeping in line. They established a ministry for state security, which was known as the Stasi, and the STASI's aim was to know everything about everyone. Its annual budget has been estimated at $1 billion. Out of a population of 16 million people, get this, 16 million in the country, they had files on 6 million of the citizens. The STASI had 90,000 full-time staff who were assisted by 170,000 full-time collaborators. That's nearly 2% of the population. But they also had a much larger network of occasional informers that brought the total up to one in every six and a half people. One in every six and a half people in the former GDR was a spy. Everyone had a spy in the family. Why? Because they were trying to keep up standards and hold everyone to the great vision. There's an old saying, the best laid plans of mice and men go awry. The dream of a newer society there turned into an oppressive Nightmare in which neighbors were paid to spy on and judge each other. Yet something like this happens every single day in every one of our hearts. It's called being judgmental. We all do it. When we're judgmental, we look at someone else's life, someone else's character, someone else's behavior, and we look at them with a harsh, critical spirit the essence of it is that we look down on them you know we put ourselves up higher than them and we look down we see ourselves as superior in some way and we we judge them to be inferior and unworthy and we all do it every day really yes really guardian readers daily mail readers south of england north of england do you have dinner or tea. Posh people, people on benefits, the middle class. People who don't do their recycling, people who don't wash up. People with another religion, people from another ethnic group. Old people, young people, people with lots of children. Do you know, we have a big family, we can go into shops and hear people tutting. One of our neighbours actually said to my wife when she was pregnant with the fifth, You've got enough children. (laughs) Parents who can't control their kids. Parents who smack. Bad drivers. You know, you find yourself doing this. People who jump the queue. People who spit. Tory voters. Labour voters. People who don't vote. Do you know how much it cost Emily Pankhurst to get you the vote? Asylum seekers. The royal family. Donald Trump. People who cheat on their partner. People who cheat on their taxes. People who tell lies. Bolshee feminists. Male chauvinist pigs. Bible bashers. Worst of all, people who don't say thank you. I hate that. How long could this list go on for? A very, very long time. The list of our prejudices is very long and very personal. And we haven't even started on Christians yet. Oh, boy. The story is told, I think it was told me by Chris, one of our members, of a missionary who went to a distant land to spread the gospel. Many years later, someone sailed to the island to see how he was getting on. They hacked their way through the jungle, and eventually they found the missionary who was sitting near the beach. At one end of the beach was a church building, and at the other end of the beach was another church building. But there were no people, because the island was uninhabited. So they said to him, why did you build two church buildings? Oh, he said, this one is my church. That's the church I used to go to. (laughs) Christians. How do we exhibit a judgmental spirit? Churches that are too traditional. Churches that are too happy-clappy. Or as one of my other neighbors said to me, you're a (laughs) happy-clappy-bappy. People who sing too loudly in church. People who don't sing loudly enough. People who don't serve as much as us or don't seem to give. People who have a nicer car. People who spend more than you on their holidays or their clothes. Some Christian families have roast chicken for lunch on Sunday. Others have roast preacher. Roast preacher, what did you think of that sermon today? I know it's pretty defensive me saying this. By the way, parents, if you spend the journey home tearing the church apart and its people... Don't be surprised if your kids give up on Christianity. You have been modeling it to them for years. But you know, it doesn't have to be like this. In fact, Jesus explicitly calls us all to a better way. Now, we've been preaching through this series of Matthew's, uh, section of Matthew's Gospel. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's just three chapters, but it's absolutely dynamite. Jesus sets out the principles and the way of life for his kingdom, which is, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. We've been calling this series. The Jesus manifesto and Greg has helpfully shown us the last few weeks heaven is not a disembodied existence where you float around with some cherubs uh, and a harp sitting on clouds heaven is the sphere where everyone lives under God's wonderful rule heaven is a world of love heaven is the world we all want one day the Bible says heaven will come to earth Jesus tells us to pray for that And so Jesus is showing us the the kingdom of heaven is the truly good life, the life that we were meant to live, the life of the future. But the danger for every reforming movement, the danger for every person who is zealous for change, the danger for every revolution is that we turn on the people who aren't keeping up the standards. We become critical of them. The danger for every Christian who is seeking first, who's trying to seek first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness, is that you are tempted to look down on other people who you don't think are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and to judge them. And so Jesus has been teaching all about the high standards of his kingdom. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this, deep, heart-level righteousness absolute love for God having your treasure in heaven not on earth seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness and after all of that he just turns to them it's a real abrupt gear change here in chapter 7 look what he says don't judge don't judge he brings this sermon to a conclusion and here he gives us some very practical teaching on how Christians are to relate to one another it's critical This is so important for community cohesion uh, because we can tear each other apart in churches. And this teaching about how we relate to one another is grounded in how we relate to God. How we relate to one another is grounded in how we relate to God. Two principles here that will transform your world if you will let them. Because you'll be freed from being judgmental by seeing yourself as you really are, seeing other people with eyes of kindness and mercy, But you'll only be free to do that if you see just how much God loves you, your heavenly Father. Because he's treated you with grace and mercy, gentleness and kindness. And if you get that, if you really get it in your heart, it changes how you view other people. So I just have two points today. had quite a long introduction, but there's two points. Uh, One, treat other people as yourself. Two, treat God as your Father. Treat other people as yourself. And treat God as your father firstly treat other people as yourself verses 1 to 5 Jesus begins very bluntly with this simple command do not judge or you too will be judged now what does he mean he's not referring here to the legal system to courts and a justice system in a a country or in a society Uh, the Bible elsewhere commends Christians to obey the laws and uh, to to respect the magistrate, to pay their taxes, to to respect the laws of the land. He's not saying we shouldn't have any kind of judgment. He's also not saying that his followers should suspend all moral judgment. In verse 6, he actually describes some people as dogs and pigs. So he evidently is using some discernment there himself. He's not saying also that there should be no discipline and discernment within the Christian community. The same book, uh, Matthew's Gospel, has a section that's very important for understanding how we we deal with sin and failure in the Christian church. It's so important, we're just gonna take a little sidebar here and look at it. So if you turn over to page 985, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus here is actually teaching about how we deal with sin in the Christian community. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, there's the first stage, just one-to-one. Don't go and talk to everybody else about it. Go and talk to them directly and point out the fault. Uh, If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's phase two. If they won't listen, you go along with, with one or two others, and together you, you try and address it. And then he says this, this phase three, if it, if it goes, uh, goes further. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So there's a three-stage process here. First of all, it's one to one. Secondly, it's two or three to one. Then it's the whole congregation. If the person still refuses to admit their fault, then you have to, he says, treat them as though they're not even a Christian. They're not part of the church. Now, pagans and tax collectors are still welcome, but they're not considered part of the community. Jesus there gives us a proper process and a proper desire to correct somebody who sins. So he's not saying, just turn a blind eye to everything. Okay, back to chapter 7. Uh, What is he saying? I'll give you a couple more cross-references. You don't need to look them up. Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. James, the Apostle James in chapter 5 says, "My Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So there's clear teaching in the New Testament that we should be accountable to one another, that we should care for one another, we should be able and brave enough sometimes to have to bring things up. And as church members, we promise that we will do that here at our church. We have a formal membership where we promise that. So Jesus, obviously, is not contradicting the rest of that teaching. So what does he mean, do not judge? Now, this verb that's translated judge here has a broad range of meaning. It can be used of legal judgments, judging in the courts. It can even be used of aesthetic judgments. You know, you judge that those curtains are particularly nice pattern or shade for this room that's an aesthetic judgment you have to look at the context to figure out what jesus means and here it is about personal relationships personal relationships jesus is talking about an unfairly critical attitude towards other people and harsh criticism of others failings judgmental harshly critical attitude He's forbidding us, those of us who follow Jesus, to have a fault-finding mentality and the critical speech that often goes along with it. It tears people apart. It disrupts communities. Jesus says, very bluntly, don't do it. Do not judge. And then he adds a principle in verse 2. Have a look at that with me. Verse 2, he says, Um, for in the same way as you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you he's using language here of the marketplace if the Jewish people went down to the marketplace they'd have a measure of how much grain they were buying or how much of whatever produce it was and you would expect that there would be a standard measurement that would be used by both parties my bushel of grain should be the same size as your bushel of grain, or we've got an unequal situation. It's measure for measure, equal, fair treatment. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying the punishment fits the crime. Remember that story of the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18? Someone who's been forgiven an enormous debt should equally be prepared to forgive somebody else an enormous debt. If you behave unmercifully toward other people, why should you expect God to treat you with mercy? God is impartial. So when you look at other people and see their failings, which we do all the time, and you're tempted to be judgmental, just ask yourself this question. What measure would I like to be applied to me? What measure would I like to be applied to me? We're all prone to be rather hard on the failings of others, and rather forgiving of ourselves. You know there's one person in the world I'm always merciful to. One person I always give the benefit of the doubt. One person I I forgive over and over again. I know his failings, but I understand why he gets it wrong, and I always give him a second chance. You know who it is? That person is me. I can think of hundreds of excuses for my own failings it's almost never my fault just ask my wife (laughs) Jesus says with the measure you use it will be measured to you so this whole thing can be summed up as treat others as yourself treat other people with the kind of forgiveness and understanding and, 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 and mercy that you want for yourself Some of the Jewish rabbis said that God had two measures by which he assessed people, the measure of justice and the measure of mercy. Which one do you want to be measured by? For example, you hear about somebody who has lied and deceived people close to them. You see the impact of the behavior and the deception. It is appalling. So you are tempted To despise them in your heart you are going to write them off you will never look at them the same way again maybe you will never speak to them you are disgusted hang on a minute what if every lie you have ever told went public do you ever lie do you ever shade the truth do you ever exaggerate twist a story to put yourself in a better light? Do you avoid telling the whole truth because it might lead to a confrontation or an awkward chat? What if everybody in this room knew your ten worst lies? What standard do you want to be measured by? Another example. You hear about someone who has betrayed their partner sexually. You can see the hurt and the devastation it has caused. The the betrayed person is wounded, deeply wounded. You are outraged by it and very upset. And in your heart, you are tempted to despise the offender, to write them off. You will never speak to them the same way again. Hold on a minute. What's your record of sexual purity? If your 10 worst sexual sins or thoughts were put on this screen, would you wait to the end of the service? You see how it plays out. Jesus says, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judged and measured by whom? Now, on one level, it's by other people. Because our sins have an uncomfortable way of finding us out. I was speaking to a fellow pastor some months ago whose colleague had collapsed morally and he left his wife and family. It was a tragedy. And he said something, it was chilling. He said, What I've learned is this. If you have a secret, it will come out. If you have a secret, it will come out. And when it comes out, how do you want to be judged? We want to be judged with mercy. But there's another horizon. It's not just the judgment of our peers, this one is is more somber. It's the final judgment where everyone who's ever lived will face God scholars talk about places in the Bible where verbs are used in that are passive verbs and the person who's going to do the action isn't named but it's implied that it's God they call them divine passives there are two passive verbs like that in 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 this verse in the same way you judge others you will be judged but the measure you use it will be measured to you. Who's going to do that judging and measuring? You know, who finally does the judging is a holy, spotless, and awe inspiring God. Now, that should make us tremble. When I face God, I won't even look at him, I'll be down on my knees. I want him to use the measure of mercy, don't you? Now, there's amazing news coming about this in point two, but we're still on point one. Treat others as yourself. Jesus is such an amazing, vivid preacher. He's given that simple command, don't judge. And now he's given this principle, reciprocal, you know, the measure you use. Now he tells a little story, a little parable. Uh, and he uses some humor here to drive home his... Uh, two points. Read verses three to five. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye just imagine you have a problem with your eyes and you are sent to the royal eye hospital just up the road here in manchester oxford road and you're, you're taken in and they you know they take you into the operating theater and you're you're lying down and you yeah, it's nerve-wracking it's your eyes it's not like your toenail i mean who wants to touch their eyes And they bring in this top surgeon who's going to do the operation. And when he comes in, you see he's got a piece of wood sticking out of his eye. It's about this long. And he's coming in like this. Where's the patient? Oh, yes. Hello. Good. Uh, Scalpel? Would you stick around? When he reaches for that scalpel, he's looking, trying to see what's going on here. I do not want a blind man operating on my cataracts. Or doing laser surgery on my cornea, you know the Lord Jesus was a carpenter. That was his first job. I suppose it wasn't his first job because he also created the universe. But anyway, <laughs> run with it. He'd grown up around his earthly father's workshop, Joseph, his earthly father, not his biological father. And Jesus here reaches back to that memory and he says, "You imagine you, you you're in the you, you see a splinter." in your brother or your sister's eye you see a failing it really is a failing it's a genuine defect There's a problem maybe a sin or a character flaw how can you deal with that splinter without checking the plank sticking out of your own eye Jesus is making two points here firstly it is inappropriate to draw attention to another person's failing when your own failing is much greater not going to help anyone there's a problem of perspective isn't there How big is a speck? How big is a plank? And you know, we need to be very careful because often the failings that we get most annoyed about in other people are our own failings. I don't know why this is, but it's true. The things we get most annoyed about in other people are our own failings, so let that be a diagnostic tool for you the next time you find yourself getting annoyed with someone. Jesus' second point is very practical. You can't be of real help to someone until your own problem has been dealt with. But notice in verse 5, there is a speck. There is a speck. Take the plank out and then you will see clearly to remove the speck. You can be involved in removing it, but only after very careful self-examination and only with great sensitivity. If someone is taking a speck out of your eye, how do you want them to do it? I remember years ago, I used to cycle to work, and I was cycling home, it was before I was married, and a small fly flew straight into my eye, and somehow, this fly managed to get under the eyeball, and it kind of went around the back, it was horrible, the more I tried to get it out, and I was sort of cycling along with one hand, the fly got further and further back, and I could still feel it, sort of moving around. And I was really freaked out. And part of me was thinking, what's going to happen if it stays in there? You know, is my eye going to, is it going to die and rot? Am I going to lose the eye? You know, hypochondriac. When I got home, I asked my mum to remove it. I was 25 years old. Mum, please would you get this fly out? I, I can't even touch, I mean, I don't know how you people with contact lenses can do it. I can't even touch the surface of my eye. I, she was there coming towards me trying to get this thing out with a pair of tweezers? I mean, how tenderly did I want to be treated at that moment? Please take care of me, mum. She got it out. You know, this is so critical for us, that we treat each other with such care and sensitivity and tenderness. Oh, how hard it is. But how important it is, if we're going to build a church, we've been talking about being a city on a hill it cannot be hidden we talk about being a community of light then we're going to have to do this really carefully very humbly deal with each other Jesus said this is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another and what does love look like that we're absolutely strict to avoid a harsh critical spirit that we measure other people with the kind of standard I would like to be applied to myself and if you do need to correct someone or bring something to their attention you do so with the utmost humility and care and gentleness and and tender respect as a fellow sinner not as a harsh critic. May God help us to grow more and more in, in this grace. Do you know Jesus even goes so far here in verse 12. He says, this really summarizes the entire Old Testament. He says, if you want to sum up the whole moral vision of the Bible, you can do it in 13 little words. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. There was a Roman emperor whose name was Severus. You thought Severus was only in Harry Potter, didn't you? This Roman emperor, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he was so impressed with these words that he had them inscribed in the rooms of his mansion. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. The emperor called it the Golden Rule. The Golden Rule. Now, how are we going to grow like this? You know, it's very hard to live like this because it's not natural. If you know yourself, you will know how instinctively critical we are of other people's failings. Uh, this week, as I've been studying this text, the Bible has held up a mirror to me, and what I've seen is really ugly. What I've seen is really ugly. Because I realize I have got, I've had harsh, critical, judgmental feelings and thoughts going back to people who I don't even know anymore. People from the past. How can we grow like this, to, to treat others as ourself? Now, the answer is not to try harder, you know, bad Christian, try harder. The answer, actually, is to treat God as your father. This is how you do. The way you get to treat others like yourself is to treat God like your father. Where do we get that? The next part of the the passage, verse 7 to 11. Let's read it. Verse 7 to 11. Uh, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus seems to change gear. You know, he's been talking about um, don't judge and, uh, you know, the speck and the plank, and suddenly he sort of seems to change gear. And some people have concluded, I think wrongly, that he's just sort of tidying up different blocks of teaching in his sermon and he's done some stuff about judging and now he just starts talking about prayer. But I think this has been put together more carefully than that. I think this is showing us how we get to be the kind of person who treats others like ourselves. Because the way we do that is to realise how God treats us. First of all, he says, you need to pursue God And be persistent. He uses three words. Ask. Seek. Knock. It's not three steps in a process. It's three ways of saying the same thing. Go after God. Talk to him. Seek him. Try and find him. Pursue him. And ask him. Bring all of your cares, all of your worries, all of your problems, all of your desires, all your needs. Bring them to God. And where does it lead? it leads to good things. It leads to good things from God. He makes this comparison about God as a father and us as human parents. And Jesus is not very flattering about you, you know, you human parents. He says you're evil. I mean, you thought you weren't a great parent. Jesus says you're actually evil. But even you know how to give good gifts, don't you? Just imagine a little child, one of those small children who went out earlier on going to their mum and asking for a sandwich and she hands them a rock ah. a few weeks ago we had an Easter service in here and we had all the kids come back in and we had some baskets of chocolate eggs we, we invited the kids to come and take one imagine that one of the parents just for a joke had put a live snake in that basket it's abusive it's incomprehensible no loving parent would dream of it. Jesus says, you know, how, if your son asks you for a fish, which is a kind of staple diet in those days, you wouldn't give him a live snake. By the way, this was a culture where they didn't eat snakes. You wouldn't do it. Jesus says, you're evil, but you know how to give good gifts. How much more, your loving Heavenly Father? How much more? Now, this doesn't mean that God automatically gives you everything you ever ask for. Do you remember the old Janis Joplin song, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. She's asking for a Mercedes-Benz. God doesn't necessarily give you everything you ask for, but he does love to hear you pray. And he does delight to give you everything you need. Everything you need, you really need. There's a scholar called uh, Tom Wright, the professor up at the University of St. Andrews. He has this wonderful comment here. He says, does Jesus really mean that God is going to answer every request we make, that he's like a father longing to give his children what they want and need? Can we truly take him up on such remarkable, open-ended promises? I think sometimes our failure to believe such promises and act on them doesn't come from a failure of faith, but a natural human reluctance, like a dislike of fundraising. Maybe I was taught when I was little not to go on asking for things all the time. It's too long ago to remember. But I suspect many people have an instinctive reluctance to ask for things. If pressed, they might say it was selfish, or that God had better things to do with his time than to provide whatever we suddenly happen to want well that may or may not be true but it would be a shame to tone down one of the most sparkling and generous sets of promises anywhere in the bible maybe it isn't selfish to ask for things maybe it's just the natural thing that children are supposed to do with parents maybe our refusal to do so actually makes God sad or puzzled why aren't his children telling him how it is for them? What they'd like him to do for them? So I want to ask you, Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is your loving heavenly father who wants you to go and ask him for things? I'm becoming convinced as the years go by that one of the biggest problems most Christians face in their Christian lives is that they don't really believe that God loves us. You don't really believe that God loves you. You kind of think he just tolerates you if you're well behaved. You don't really believe the open arms of the Father who welcomes you into his family, do you? But just look at what he paid for you. You know, uh, the Bible says that by nature, by, the, by our inherited nature as human beings, we are actually enemies of God. We're not born neutral. We're born wicked, sinners, rebels, far from God. The Bible's picture of us is not flattering at all. Jesus already said, you are evil. But, so therefore, for you to be in God's family, what does he have to do? He has to adopt you. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible. It's been translated into goodness knows how many languages. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what God did. God the Father did to bring you into his family. He gave his son for you so that you could become his son or daughter he adopted you having done that does he want to spend time with you is he interested in hearing your problems does he care there's an amazing verse in a part of the bible that most people hardly ever read let's be honest the the book of Zephaniah I'm going to tell you the page number because most of us can't even find it Zephaniah is on page 946. Zephaniah is this little prophet, Israel's history. And he just has this little book, three chapters. That's his whole message. But wow, Zephaniah's got something to say. Page 946, Zephaniah 3, verse 14. And I'm going to finish here. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Daughter Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Listen to this. The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. If you're a Christian, this is even more true for you than it was for the people of Israel. God will take great delight in you and no longer rebuke you. He rejoices over you with singing. God is singing about you. Do you see the affections of this father? Jesus says, how much more Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you believe in? We're not measured, thank God, with the measure of justice, uh, but the measure of mercy. Because the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven, became one of us, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death went to the cross and on his cross he said father forgive them they don't know what they're doing and then he said later it is finished he had paid the debt for all our sins that's the extent of God's mercy to you and me who by nature oppose him he loved you so much he did that so Jesus concludes, therefore, do to others as you would have them do to you.